Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 171. Back after a lengthy hiatus from the podcast, just to cancer, regroup, gather my thoughts, and stockpile some content for this new season. And I don't think it's going to disappoint. We've got some really good guests lined up from players to coaches to sports medicine professionals, and also just some solo episodes, uh, including the one that I'm doing today. And I think this is a topic that I'm probably long overdue to cover. Um, I've hit on it in maybe little bits and pieces in previous episodes, but it's something I want to dedicate a lot more time to today. We're going to talk about diagnostic imaging. So things like MRIs, x-rays, CT scans, things like that. And what they mean, not just for the baseball population, but for the general population. Um, I think this is a really overlooked topic that is vitally important for really every player, coach, parent, um, sports medicine professional within the baseball realm to really appreciate. Um, I spend a big chunk of my life looking at radiology reports and really counseling players and, and their agents and their coaches and things like that on what those things mean um, for their health and their career. So I think it's important that we cover it and I'm looking forward to it today. This episode is brought to you by AG1, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it can be difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can often wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where AG1 can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. That's why I use it daily, as do several of my family members, and we recommend it to a lot of our top athletes. One scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients that work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet to support energy, focus, digestion, and recovery. And this can all happen for less than $3 per day and without taking multiple products. While most nutritional supplements come to market and stay stagnant, AG1 continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing over 50 improvements in the last decade alone. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best tasting nutrition habit on the planet. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, it'll work for you, and it contains less than one gram of sugar per serving. They put 75 ingredients to the rigorous NSF certification test to come up with a safe formula that's trusted by some of the world's top athletes, including many of our own at Cressy Sports Performance. Right now, AG1 is giving our listeners a special offer of 10 free travel packets with their first purchase. Just head to drinkag1.com backslash Cressy and claim this special offer. These travel packets are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health while you're traveling for games, training, or simply on the go. They can be great counterbalance to the less than ideal on the road food options that are out there for a lot of our traveling baseball players. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance of getting nutrient diversity, head to drinkag1.com backslash Cressy to get 10 free travel packets with your first purchase. Again, that's drinkag1.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. You won't regret it. Today, I'm going to be talking about diagnostic imaging, so x-rays, MRIs, CT scans, as they relate to not just baseball players, 
with, but the general population as well. And I think it's really vital on the front end that I emphasize, I'm not a radiologist. I am not an orthopedic surgeon who looks at films all day. People go to school for a long time to interpret those things. And really what I am is I'm a guy who spent a lot of time looking at radiology reports, uh, interpretations of those scans, and tried to put them you know, into context for injured or, or healthy players and parents and coaches who are trying to discern what they all mean. Uh, because sometimes you get a radiology report and it's, it's a collection of different things that are thrown at you and you're trying to figure out what's clinically significant, what's not. And, and I think that's a really good place to start. But do appreciate that the MRIs, x-rays, CT scans, these are all vitally important pieces of the diagnostic puzzle. Um, so you, you definitely need them and they're really key for, for helping athletes get the information they need. But at the same time, sometimes they can lead us to, to bark up the wrong tree. And that's what I'll, I'll start with talking about today. And I think the best place to start is really the, the study that piqued my interest the most. Jensen was the lead author. This is in the New England Journal of Medicine all the way back in 1994. And the, the title of this the study was Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Lumbar Spine in People Without Back Pain. So basically what they did with this study was they looked at 98 people who did not have back pain and they imaged their spine and they actually found that 52% of the subjects had a disc bulge at at least one level, 27% had a protrusion and 1% had an extrusion. So 82% of subjects basically had issues at, at one level. Um, and then 38% had an abnormality of more than one intervertebral disc. Um, and actually they've repeated this study more recently and the numbers are even higher now. So this is, this is very eye-opening and, and you know, results were similar between men and women that you know, I think historically you have a friend that's got back pain. They say, Oh, I've got a bulging disc or something like that. And you know, really the, the truth is that just about everybody has that. Um, and reality, the question becomes, why is it that some people are asymptomatic while some people hurt? And when I saw this study, um, you know, like many other people in the industry, I started digging deeper, you know, where else is this present? Um, you know, and what are some examples and, and specific to an athletic population, Soler and Calderon, uh, back in 2000 looked at Spanish elite athletes. And in particular, they were looking at spondylolysis, which is basically a fancy term for a spine fracture. Okay. And they actually found that 8% of elite Spanish athletes had fractures in their spine. The highest prevalence was, was 27% in track and field throwers. They saw it in 17% of rowers, 14% of gymnasts, and then 13% of weightlifters. Um, and you know, they had multiple levels of involvement in, in only 3% of cases, but it was bilateral 78% of the time, which is not uncommon when you see a stress fracture for someone to develop kind of some compensatory changes on the opposite side. But what was really fascinating about this study was only 50 to 60% of those diagnosed actually reported low back pain. Um, that's a fascinating thing is that we have, you know, in, in this particular study, two out of every 25 athletes that are running around, uh, you know, participating in high level sports in Spain back in 2000 had stress fractures, but one of them had no idea it was there. Um, so the presence of spondees at the time in that study, they said was estimated between 15 and 63% with the highest prevalence among weightlifters. So my guess is that, you know, here we are 23 years later, and my guess is that that number is dramatically higher, uh, both in terms of time, the, the 23 years that have lapsed until now, and in the USA. The reason I say that is, is first, we have a lot more rotational, you know, sports here. We have lacrosse, um, you know, we have baseball, we have hockey, things that don't really take place that much in Spain. We also have more contact injuries. So spondies aren't just extension and rotation injuries. 
in many cases, they're also contact injuries. So you're going to see that in hockey, lacrosse, football, wrestling, a lot of these things that we're, you know, seeing in, in younger athletes. But I also think that weightlifting is much more accepted here. So you're going to see a lot more athletes lifting heavy stuff to support their participation in, you know, in other sports. And really the truth is every time you look at an oblique strain MRI or, you know, something like that, an athlete, you often see spondies that are completely asymptomatic that you just see on imaging. So a lot of athletes are walking around with stress fractures that they don't even know are there. They're, they're completely asymptomatic. So, you know, what's fascinating is, you know, that first study came out in 94 and the second one that I highlighted came out in 2000. And then, um, there was a, a really interesting, uh, you know, review article in the Lancet. It was imaging strategies for low back pain, systematic review and meta-analysis in the Lancet back in 2009. And they actually said that review of imaging for low back pain without significant red flags suggesting, uh, serious conditions may actually be contraindicated. So they said lumbar imaging for low back pain without the indications of serious underlying conditions does not improve clinical outcomes. Clinicians should refrain from routine immediate lumbar imaging in patients with acute or subacute low back pain and without features suggesting a serious underlying condition. So it's fascinating to think that having an MRI in some patients can actually lead to a poor outcome. Why? Because it may get you barking up the wrong tree. It may give you five diagnoses when really there's just one that's actually contributing to a patient's pain. So this is, you know, kind of a fascinating collection of insights that really relate to a spine. But the thing about a spine is it's a, it's a, it's a unique uh, anatomical structure. It's much different than the kind of the traditional joints that we know. So it's probably important that we also extend some of this interest into other joints in the body. And bear with me because I am going to get to the baseball folks eventually. But Mark Philippon, who's you know one of the world's premier hip specialists um, out in Colorado, actually did a study in 2013 where he compared hockey players to skiers over uh, age groups. Okay, so he looked at 10 to 12 year olds, 13 to 15 year olds, and 16 to 19 year old age groups. And what they did was they imaged the hips in these different athletes. And, and what they found with hockey players is between ages 10 and 12, 37% of them had femoral acetabular in their uh, impingement in their hips. In other words, they have a bony overgrowth on either the head of the femur or on the, the hip socket, the acetabulum. And that closes down the space and it can contribute to labral tears. So 37% of them had FAI and 48% of them had an associated labral tear. If you look three years older, so the 13 to 15 year old age group, 63% of them had FAI and 63% of them had labral tears. And by ages 16 to 19, 93% of them had FAI and 93% of them had labral tears. So it's fascinating think, to just participating in hockey. And, and he didn't dig in on, you know, how long they participated throughout the year. Were they playing other sports? You know, any kind of like technical components. Were they also lifting at the same time? But in general, the older hockey players get, and, and the more they participate, the more bone they lay down in their hip and the more associated labral tearing that there is. And there was another study that uh, from Larson's group in 2013 that found that 87% of high-level college football hips had femoral acetabular impingement, but only 31% of them had symptoms. So it just goes to show you that these are anatomical variations, right? You know, maybe not ones that people were born with, but things that were acquired. Um, they're structural deviations from normalcy, but not all of them need to go have surgery. So sometimes we, we do these, you know, diagnostic interventions um, to get a look at a joint and they may have some changes there that don't necessarily warrant, you know, a surgical intervention. Taking it a step further and looking down to 
the knee. This is a study I actually talk about a lot. It's a Scandinavian study that came out in 2000 from Cook's group, patellar tendinopathy in junior basketball players, a controlled clinical and ultrasonographic study of 268 patellar tendons in players aged 14 to 18 years. So what they did was they took 134 elite junior basketball players. So that's 268 total patellar tendons. And they asked them, Hey, how many of you have anterior knee pain? Something that, that actually would make us think that you have a patellar tendinopathy. And there were only 19 tendons out of the 268 that presented clinically with symptoms of, of tendinopathy. So in other words, the players said, hey, I have an anterior knee that, that's really barking at me. So what they then did was they went and they ultrasound um, tested basically every one of those 268 uh, tendons just to see what could happen. And they found that 26% of all the tendons could be diagnosed with tendinopathy based on the degenerative changes. So really what we're saying is for every one that actually gets diagnosed because of symptoms, there are probably three more that are overlooked. Maybe these are people that are right on the cusp of having symptoms, or they just understand how to distribute stress and those symptoms never quite reach threshold. This isn't uncommon in people who have tendinopathy. They might have you know, days where it's really cranky because they did a lot and days when they do a little bit less and it doesn't bark quite as much. But I would say that if you take an older population or a more heavily overused population, and these numbers are going to be substantially higher, right? That's why we see more, you know, 60 year old people who have chronic rotator cuff discomfort, you know, when they go to sleep at night or first thing in the morning when they wake up. And, and this is actually reflected um, you know, if we look at the research on older adults, so sure at Al did a study in 1995 where they did MRIs of 96 asymptomatic subjects. And they found that there were rotator cuff tears in 34% of cases and in 54% of people over the age of 60. Miniachi's group in 1995 did MRIs of 30 shoulders under age 50, and they didn't see a single completely normal rotator cuff. And 23% of them actually had evidence of partial thickness tears. This is a not surprising thing, but you know, we're, we're talking about the, the general population, people just aging, things like that. And, you know, we're on a baseball podcast. So I think we need to figure out how we actually, uh, you know, relate this to a baseball population. And, th and there are two studies that are from a little bit further back that I think we should really consider. The first one is Miniachi, I, I mentioned before. I did a study, magnetic resonance imaging of the shoulder in asymptomatic professional baseball pitchers. It was in the American Journal of Med Sports Medicine back in 2002. And they looked at 40 professional pitchers and they did imaging on them. You know, they were asymptomatic and they found that 79% of them. So 20 out of the 40 had abnormal labral features. They were just looking at the labral in this, this conversation. Uh, they found that magnetic resonant imaging of the shoulder and asymptomatic high performance throwing athletes reveals abnormalities that may encompass a spectrum of non-clinical findings. Um, Connor's group in 2003 looked at 20 asymptomatic tennis and baseball players, and they found that eight of the 20, so 40% had evidence of partial or full thickness rotator cuff tears, and five of the 20 had evidence of a Bennett's lesion, which is kind of a, a speed bump the rotator, needs, rotator cuff needs to go over. So all these reactive changes are taking place in baseball shoulders. And the evidence does suggest that it, it progresses. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second, but that's, you know, professional pitchers. So let's step back and look at some of our younger athletes. Del Grande et al. in the Journal of Computer Assisted Tomography in 2016 did a good study looking at non-symptomatic professional baseball pitcher draft picks. Okay. So they, they looked at the dominant shoulder of 19 asymptomatic pitchers who were drafted, um, 
you know, prior to their contract sounding. And they had two different radiologists independently review these imaging uh, studies. They found that 68% of them had rotator cuff tendinopathy. Um, 32% of them actually had a partial thickness tear of the supraspinatus. 21% had AC joint arthritis. 53% of them had some evidence of a previous mild, moderate, or significant glenohumeral subluxation. 79% of them had some kind of glenoid remodeling. So that's the, the socket. 21% of them had Bennett's lesion. And so I think it comes back to these numbers are probably significantly higher in throwers. So pretty much everybody that gets drafted, if you look at a shoulder, has stuff that's, that's, that's going on in that population. And what's really intriguing is this Lesniak study in the American Journal of Sports Medicine in 2013. They looked at another 21 asymptomatic professional pitchers from a single MLB organization. And what they would do is they did preseason MRIs of their dominant shoulder between 2001 and 2010. And keep in mind that those, those times are very significant. Guys did not throw as hard back in 01 through 2010 as they do now. And they basically made sure that they had nobody that had had a, a disabled listed in the two years before that MRI. And the mean age at the time of the MRI was 29 years. They ranged from 20-year-olds all the way to 39-year-olds. 11 of the 21 asymptomatic professional pitchers had a rotator cuff tear. Nine of them were articular surface tears, uh, you know, so partial thickness, uh, kind of classic internal impingement diagnoses. And two actually had full thickness rotator cuff tears. So think about that. You have two people out of a group of 21 professional pitchers. So call it roughly 10% of guys pitching in the big leagues have full thickness rotator cuff tears that, and they're completely asymptomatic. Uh, 10 of these, these 21 pitchers had superior labral anterior posterior, so slap tears. Um, and 13 of them had them either anteriorly or posteriorly only. So there was a lot going on in this population. There was also a significantly significant relationship between the number of innings pitched and the presence of a rotator cuff tear. So the mean number of career innings pitched by the the subjects who had a rotator cuff tear was 1,014 compared to only 729 innings pitched in pitchers who didn't have a rotator cuff tear. So it speaks to this idea of there's probably a little bit of a chronically failing rotator cuff over the course of time with a career. This is something that we see in a lot of older pitchers is that the cuff just slowly and slowly fails. And, you know, they probably you know, add a little bit more stiffness to their capsule, you know, or maybe it's a, a protective adaptation in some way, but it is fascinating to see that there, you know, there does seem to be more failures of the rotator cuff as people pitch longer and longer, but what's interesting, there's no statistically significant findings between any single preseason MRI finding and subsequent time on the, the disabled list. So they followed these athletes in the years that passed. And, and just because they saw these crazy things on their shoulder MRI doesn't mean that they were more likely to, to go on the IL. So that's a, a very fascinating thing that we'll return to in a little bit. Garcia is a group that in 2019 in the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine put out a study, magnetic resonant imaging findings of the asymptomatic elbow predict injuries and surgery in major league pitchers. So, so we're going to look at the elbow now. They scanned um, a collection of, of players during their pre-signing you know, period. 41 pitchers had asymptomatic uh, MRIs, and, and they had basically excluded anyone who had had a recent uh, disabled list placement for an elbow issues. And of the 41 pitchers that they looked at, 16 had normal elbows, but 61%. Um, so 39% had normal elbows and 61% had at least one normal finding. And some of it was just, you know, joint damage, dinged up, stuff like that. They, they saw one player who had loose bodies. 
But what's most interesting to our conversation today, there were 14 pitchers with evidence of a UCL hyperintense signal. Um, two of them had an ulnar-sided tear, so that the distal end, um, you know, further down of the ligament. 11 had some kind of a humeral-sided tear, so the more proximal component. So these were really big deals. They also saw five pitchers who had hyperintensity of the flexor pronator mass. Um, they saw eight pitchers who had a, a posterior medial impingement, you know, who, who had some kind of bony changes, mild osteophyte developments, things like that. But where elbows were very different than shoulders is that they were much more predictive of future IL stints than the shoulder findings. And I think this, this makes a lot of sense, right? At a shoulder, you have tons of, of freedom of motion. You have a lot of soft tissue structures that cross the joint. So if you've got something that's a little bit dinged up, there's a lot more stuff that can pick up the slack. Elbows are very different because it's just this small hinge joint that in the baseball throwing motion is asked to do a lot of different things. So when you basically have a, a ulnar collateral ligament that's forced to, to stretch as someone lays their arm back a little bit more, you don't really have a ton of protection outside of the flexor pronator mass to really you know, offer some kind of support if the UCL is insufficient. So I think this is why when we look at an elbow, we can see this general trend of, all right, if the UCL is insufficient, then somebody winds up with a chronic flexor tendinopathy because those muscles are trying to protect the joint. Maybe they eventually start laying down more bone to provide some stability. We've even seen people, uh, you know, in their surgical pictures who actually may have an ulnar nerve that gets bigger and stronger to try to prevent some kind of, of medial elbow instability. Some of the craziest stuff I've seen on, on post-surgery pictures. So Elbows just don't seem to do well when they're really dinged up at younger ages. We interrupt this podcast with a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by AG1. It's an NSF certified all-in-one superfood supplement that features 75 whole food sourced ingredients designed to support your body's nutritional needs. I use this product daily myself and a ton of our athletes do as well. Head to drinkag1.com backslash Cressy and claim my special offer of 10 free travel packets with your first purchase. AG1 gives you peace of mind that you're covering all your nutritional bases. Again, that's drinkag1.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you'll get that special offer. To build on that com comment, uh, Heard back in the American Journal of Sports Medicine in 2011 had a study magnetic resonant imaging of the throwing elbow in uninjured high school age baseball pitchers. And again, keep in mind that this is 12 years ago. This is before every high school kid threw 93. Um, and you know, and we consistently had guys throwing 100 miles an hour in the, in the draft coming out of high school. They looked at 23 uninjured, completely asymptomatic male high school age baseball pitchers. The average age was 16. There was no history of elbow injury. Um, and they had a minimum of three years experience with pitching as their primary position. Um, they did exams on both elbows just to have some comparison. They had three participants. So three out of 23 had normal elbows and they had 15. So 65% had basically an asymmetrical anterior band ulnar collateral ligament thickening. Um, and, and that's not out of the ordinary, right? You throw a baseball, your UCL is going to thicken up and try to strengthen. But what we're watching for is this hyper intense signal where there's some kind of, uh, you know, transient or chronic injury to the ligament. And they found that in four individuals who had sublime tubercle intermedial facet edema and 14%, uh, 14 participants. So 61% of the athletes had a posterior medial subcontractor sclerosis of the ulnotrochlear articulation, including 35% who had an actual osteophyte in that area. 
So there was a lot going on. 10 individuals, so 43% had multiple abnormal findings in the throwing elbow. So this is new. This is something that's really significant, uh, you know, dating back to 2011 is we're seeing more and more changes to this ligament where it's, it's kind of like tickling the dragon's tail. You want that ligament to thicken up a little bit, just like you want your, your proximal humeral growth plate to stretch just a little bit to allow you to lay your arm back a little bit more, but you don't want it to come so fast that you wind up creating some kind of injuries. And so taking this even a little bit younger, Penix Group at the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery in 2016 has a study preseason assessment of radiographic abnormalities in elbows of little league baseball players. Okay, so we went from pro to basically, you know, amateur draft type guys. We went to high school players. Now we're going on to look at little leaguers. So looked at 26 little league players who were between ages 10 and 13. Um, and they went uh, underwent a bilateral elbow MRI. Okay, nine of the players had. 12 positive MRI findings. This is a young group. They, they found that there were seven findings of edema or signal change in the medial epicondyle growth plate, which is not a, out of the ordinary, right? That's a, this is a population we see more bony issues. Um, there were two players in this group that had fragmentation of the medial epicondyle, and there were three findings of edema or signal change in the sublime tubercle. Okay, that's the attachment point distally of the ulnar collateral ligament. So this is a, a kind of concerning thing where you look at 10 to 13-year-old kids and you're, you, you effectively have three things uh, you know, that may be indicating there's some kind of ligamentous involvement. Um, but there was, there was a really kind of intriguing takeaway from this study is that um, when you go and you look at these players, you know, they wanted to follow up and see what was it that, that predicted these positive MRI findings? What were the things that made us more likely to see a 10 to 13 year elbow that was dinged up, you know, dominant side compared to the non-dominant side. And the two factors that were associated with the positive MRI finding were year round play. So 47% of the year round players um, had changes in their elbow compared to only 11% of non-year-round players. And then working with a private coach. So 71% of, of, of players who worked with a private pitching coach had changes in their elbow compared to only 21% in the, the uh, non-injured group. Um, and they found that in this group, a history of pain was associated with year-round play and a private coach. Um, I'm not saying private coaches are bad. We have private coaches that work at Cressy Sports Performance, and we want to make sure that we do our best to set people up for success. Unfortunately, not a lot of private coaches are having hard conversations about how to structure a competitive year, when to get time off. But we do know time and time again that year-round sports participation um, is associated with having problems, Okay. Now, I want to build on this just a little bit more to make my point even more significantly. Believe it or not, there was a Japanese study um, from Okamoto's group in 2016 in the Japanese Journal of Radiology. And this is a fascinating study because you have to really kind of like think about how it was structured. They looked at Japanese boys and girls ages 9 to 12. And this is an exact quote, players who were not actively playing because of elbow pain or tenderness at examination were excluded. Players who had a past history of elbow pain or tenderness, but no symptoms at the time of the examination were included. So basically what they're doing is they're taking out any players that they know have elbow issues. These are the kids that are already broken and not participating or kids that they know are throwing through elbow pain at an existing time. So they just looked at kids that they thought were completely healthy. And this is boys and girls ages nine to 12. And they found that 42% of them 
still had some kind of UCL damage on MRI. And the number actually jumped to 63% in pitchers. So we think things are bad in our youth population in the US. And in reality, Japanese players um, are significantly worse. And to kind of piggyback on some of the year-round participation in private coach side of things, in this study, the mean, the average training hours per week was 12 hours and 48 minutes with a standard deviation of five hours and 18 minutes. So what does that mean? Let's assume kids practice you know, six days a week. That's roughly two hours and change of practice each day for kids nine to 12, which in and of itself doesn't seem super crazy. But when you have a standard deviation of five hours and 18 minutes, you're basically pushing that number up over 18 hours a week of practice um, for nine to 12 year old baseball players who are skeletally immature. And sure enough, you do that much volume, that much consistent throwing, you know, we hear the, the lessons about like the marathon bullpens and preparation for the Japanese competitive season. They are fundamentally changing ligaments at a really young age. So what happens? These kids get bigger, they get stronger, they become professional pitchers, um, you know, and they, they often wind up with issues. We don't hear about them quite as much because because it's just not as accepted in Japanese culture to, to report injuries. And they may not have the same sports medicine resources that are taking place here. Um, but it is a big thing. And, and there's obviously a collection of, of examples of Japanese players who have come over from Japan and then been injured when they got to professional baseball, when they've gone from seven day rotations to five day rotations. So there's a, a lot of complexities here, but we, we are seeing young kids who are more broken on imaging than ever before. And the elbows tell us a lot more about what we need to do than the shoulders do. So, you know, what, what does an imaging tell us? Well, it, it doesn't speak to how a body currently functions, right? There, there may be situations where someone compiled this, this collection of, of, you know, findings on imaging when they were younger, but then they've learned to move a lot better. They've optimized their mechanics. They've gotten stronger, all that side of things. So, you know, it may be an outdated snapshot of how an athlete moves. You know, it doesn't speak to how the rest of the body interacts with, with that shoulder or elbow. You know, some people are very efficient in the way that they transfer forces in order to take stress off of, you know, different joints. So an example of that might be improving shoulder mobility to take stress off of an elbow. It also doesn't speak to like what subclinical issues may also be present, right? We talked about the the example of like the patellar tendinopathy and the, the Scandinavian, uh, you know, basketball players. Some of those guys are just re waiting to reach threshold. But, you know, we also see things that, you know, like an ulnar neuritis might be really, really mild and not show up on imaging. Um, it doesn't speak to, you know, what density means for movement quality. We really don't get a good snapshot of the fascial system when we do a lot of this imaging. Um, you know, and we've seen quite a few athletes over the years there, they have a clean MRI, but then they go and they get some manual therapy and it takes all of their, uh, you know, their symptoms away just by, by pushing on the right spot and giving the right kind of treatments there. Um, and it doesn't speak to how lax an athlete is, right? So if you have an athlete who's really hypermobile, a ligamentous injury, whether it's an ankle sprain or an, a UCL sprain, might be more significant versus an athlete that's a little bit more stiffer. They have some muscular stiffness they can fall back on. It might be not, might not be nearly as significant. So we have to look at these as part of a much bigger diagnostic puzzle. But what I want you to really think back on is that Cook study I, I just referred to again of you know ultrasound of patellar tendons. They found that seven percent actually had symptoms at the time, but reality it was twenty six percent of tendons that could be diagnosed on imaging. 
So really tendinopathy is, is a constant give and take in every muscle slash tendon in the body. And population is going to be population, excuse me, degeneration is going to be population and activity specific. So what does that mean? If I'm a baseball player with a mild rotator cuff tendinopathy and I go out and I throw a hundred pitches, it might be really, really sore for a little bit. And it comes back down under threshold. Um, if I have, you know, really short rest periods and I come back and I pitch on three days rest and throw a hundred pitches again, all I'm doing is I'm, I'm kind of pushing that tendon more and more towards, you know, a symptomatic state and eventually towards some kind of a tear. Conversely, if I, I modulate my pitch count, I work hard to get that tendon stronger. I eat well, I sleep well, I do what I can to basically keep it under threshold. Then we're probably in a good position. And the truth is you can see this at Achilles tendinopathy, patellar tendinopathy, rotator cuff tendinopathy, flexor tendinopathy, really anywhere across the body. What we're trying to do with our overall structure of training and rest and sports participation is to basically keep athletes below threshold. There's plenty of examples of, of us doing this, not just with training, right? You see people who will get kinesio taping to redistribute forces so they can basically spread stress out over multiple joints. You know, there are times when, you know, we do like test retest with some of our athletes where something hurts and then we reposition them and it takes away all their symptoms. Like looking at, you know, basically shoulder abduction, we take an arm overhead and they pinch on the top. We guide them into a little bit more scapular upward rotation and good things happen. So just understanding how high level movement competency can work to reduce the likelihood that symptoms will reach threshold is a really important part of the training process. Unfortunately, we're in an era where people sell out so much for specificity that we see a lot of circumstances where people just keep banging their heads against the wall and pushing into their symptoms. I also talk to our athletes a lot about active versus passive restraints in the body. So active restraints would be muscles, tendons. Um, these are things that actually get stronger in response to training stress. You could actually make the argument that bone does as well. We develop bone density when we strength train or participate in, in weight-bearing exercises and things like that. And there's certainly evidence to show that there is greater bone density in the throwing uh, humerus um, like on the dominant side in, in baseball pitchers. And then we certainly have passive restraints, things like the meniscus, the, the labrum, the discs. You know, ligaments are probably somewhere in the middle. Your ligaments can adapt, but not nearly on the level that tendons and muscles can. But I always tell people that, you know, when the active restraints aren't doing their job, whether it's from a, a strength standpoint, from a tissue density standpoint, from a range of motion standpoint, you're going to create more stress on the passive restraints or the active restraints themselves might, might get into trouble. So if you, you lose range of motion, you might be more prone to a, um, you know, a muscle slash tendon injury. So what does all of this collectively speak to? Well, there's a, there's a few things in play. The first thing is I think it's vitally important to not just have a medical diagnosis, what you would get from the imaging, but I think you also need to make sure that you have a movement diagnosis. And this is something I've, I've talking I've talked about a lot in previous seminars and written about in various articles. Is you know Shirley Sarman is is someone who's who's been a really impactful physical therapist you know across the health and human performance industries, and she's talked a lot about you know making sure that you have a movement diagnosis. So this isn't just a a guy with a rotator cuff tear. This is a guy who has scapular downward rotation syndrome or humeral anterior glide or something like that that we really need to take into account. Um, and sometimes the medical model may not be well equipped to handle, you know, some of these conditions that are highly variable, right? Not every case of back pain or shoulder pain or elbow pain is the 
you know, presents the same. And in many cases you have, you know, short windows to visit with doctors um, and they may not have the time to do a full deep dive on everything that may be going on. So they give you your medical diagnosis and then you need to follow up with a good rehabilitation professional to give you some kind of, of movement diagnosis that also supports it. So taking this to our modern challenges, what we're realizing are that injuries are really outpacing sports medicine's ability to keep up. Um, I, and I think elbows are, are foremost among all these, these injuries. Uh, and all the numbers that I've pretty much outlined are, are dated. These studies took place years ago. We know there's a, a real gap from the time that research is done and the time it's published. And we know that velocities are surging each year. Major League Baseball, Tommy John surgeries are basically going up linearly alongside uh, average fastball velocity in the big leagues. Um, so all the elbows in the professional and amateur baseball ranks seem to be ticking time bombs. So the question then becomes, what is it that's going to change the game for these athletes? And I think there's a few different solutions. The, the foremost among them is we need to get athletes to skeletal maturity before these adaptations kick in. The problem is, is that we're seeing too many kids that are broken before age 16. Um, and it's because we're selling out to be good, too good, too young, when in reality, what we should be doing is selling out for a broad base of athletic development, multi-sport participation, exposure to a wide variety of stimuli, um, early introduction of strength conditioning. Um, I remember Mike Boyle talking about, uh, you know, age 11 on, they averaged, I think, two lifts per week with with his kids. Um, you know, my daughters are about to turn nine, our, our oldest, our twins, and they love going to the gym. So they're just getting more intrigued about it. So I think it's important to build on that. It sounds crazy to say, but too good, too young is a real problem. Um, and I don't think it's just a problem from a musculoskeletal standpoint. I think it's a problem from a psychosocial stress standpoint. Um, you know, if athletes are, are bent out of shape about losing in a 12U tournament and, you know, chasing, you know, rings and trophies at all ages and doing it year round, I think there's a huge, you know, component of putting so much pressure on themselves and, and burning out that, you know, may actually contribute. We know there's some research that shows that psychosocial stress does correlate to joint loading. So we need to be mindful of that side of things. But really, you know, if we refer back to that aforementioned Penix study, preseason assessment of radiographic abnormalities and elbows of Little League players, the two factors associated with positive MRI findings were year-round participation and working with a private coach. So this is really, you know, basic stuff. People listen to this podcast in many cases to learn what they should do. Um, you know, what exercises should I do? You know, when should I start throwing a curveball? All these different things. But the truth is that sometimes the most important lessons are what shouldn't you do? Year-round participation at a young age is a recipe for disaster. Um, I have kind of probably the one of the best perspectives on this, having spent a lot of time in Massachusetts and now being in Florida, it is much, much easier to develop arms in Massachusetts where there are actual graduated exposures with forced downtime because of the weather versus in Florida where kids uh, on radiographic findings, the radiology reports I see in Florida are an absolute disaster. Just about every 15, 16 year old kid that that comes in, most of whom are playing year round, um, has a collection of really, really bad findings on this stuff. And it doesn't bode well for them being healthy or participating at a high level in the years ahead. So, you know, I think we've really got to chase the low hanging fruit. So what does that mean? It means um, a rigorously guarded throwing calendar without deviations. In other words, you figure out when you're going to get some downtime, you figure out which events you're going to you're going to participate in. You're going to figure out what your yearly innings total is, because if you're a high school kid who throws over a hundred innings a year, that's a really big deal. And in the state of Florida, when the season starts in, in late January and goes all the way up until Thanksgiving, 
a hundred innings happens really, really fast, particularly if you're a good player. So we've got to have a, a more guarded throwing calendar that just doesn't deviation based on doesn't deviate based on emotional whims. We also need to have meticulous management of acute and chronic workload. That becomes a real big thing in the summertime when you'll see athletes that may and go may go and throw like a one inning stint at a showcase, you know, two weekends in a row, and then they come back and they try to make a seven inning start when they they were built up and then they lost some of that chronic workload. I think we need to look really really closely at that as something that's a maybe an overlooked cause of some of the injuries in these players. And then we've got to chase the low-hanging fruit, right? We gotta we gotta play multiple sports as long as we possibly can. We've got to get started with strength conditioning at a, at a younger age if we're going to put this kind of stress on people. I, I think you know Boyle's comment about age eleven on is is a good one as long as the kids are into it. Um, I think we need to look really really closely at, at nutrition and sleep. You know, if we're going to have these high level demands on on young kids, we've got to make sure we're giving them every resource to bounce back. Not just you know nutrition sleep, but you know we we have you know, 16 year old kids that travel with Mark pros and, you know, arm sleeves, compression devices, things like that are really good about taking care of themselves. And then obviously a a really good arm care program. And that might be everything from, you know, self myofascial release, or actually seeing a good manual therapist, um, all the way to doing strength exercises, things that, you know, improve scapular control and rotator cuff stuff. Um, you know, all that stuff really plays into, to the big picture of preparing athletes for the high level. And we, we last but not least, we want to make sure that the strength conditioning programs that we're working with are, are age appropriate and also movement. Just because you're doing a strength conditioning program doesn't necessarily mean that it's carrying over to what you need. We see a lot of athletes that spend a lot of time just lifting with terrible technique, you know, loading non ideal patterns. Um, and the truth is that that's never, you know, a recipe for success. We want, we want to add good motor control to the system. Um, you know, in these young athletes that we're setting them up for success with the right stuff. So big picture takeaways from this podcast, you see a lot of crazy findings in everybody's MRIs, but particularly when you look at shoulder and elbow MRIs, the concerning thing is that these MRIs are looking worse at worse at younger ages, and you will no longer see a normal shoulder or elbow, you know, in MLB draft prospects and certainly in players, um, you know, on the minor league and major league side, just because the velocity has surged so much and it's happened at younger ages. So we as an industry need to come together and figure out a way how to protect kids from themselves up until, you know, ages 16, 17, when we can kind of turn them loose a little bit more. And that really starts, you know, as, as hard as it is with, with, you know, kids and their parents and coaches making hard decisions about when they're going to participate and then guarding that, that throwing calendar with their life. Because if you, if you make deviations from it, you're always putting a kid at risk um, every time he goes out on the field with, you know, a compromised anatomical structure, but also, you know, in the presence of fatigue where he's less likely to have the, the motor control to really protect himself in those, uh, in those extended pitch count situations. Thanks so much for tuning in to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. We really appreciate you carving out some time in your schedule to listen, not just to this episode, but also to some of the episodes from our archives. If you enjoy what you heard, we'd love it if you'd share it with friends, colleagues, and teammates, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks again for your time.